0: Oh. You cannot imagine. I mean, every time she, something like this happens and I'm home without her, i just... Lost. lost. Well, lost, lost in, it's not so much law. I mean, maybe, but it's more that y- you realize how much you do together and what you can manage together, because when you're alone, and I'm sure this is true for widowers and widows, and, and I, I mean, it's an eye-opener for that. How much more I have to do when she's not there, the cooking, the taking care of the dogs, the watering plants and and all of this while I'm still trying to do my own work and um, it's really it it's a it's a real period of <coughs> of, of um, having to learn to be more patient and well, well, all of that, but yes. patient and okay, let's start. Um, what I'd like to do today is um, go generally over what we did last week and then um, say some things about what we're going to do this week and then I'd like to look at specifically some passages again um, to focus on some of the more important things we've been talking about all along and trying to deepen our sense of it. The great theme of the Aeneid of course, as as you all know, is the theme of whatever word we're going to give it. Transformation. uh, We can call it translation. That's actually a good word. um, Because um, the task that both Virgil and Aenea's face is how to take the past that has been um, so formative in their lives and carry it forward and change it while they go. So um, he's having to take a Greek language, the Iliad and the Odyssey, both in Greek, a Greek culture that dominated the Trojan War and carry it forward and give it a new form, give it a new life. Um, and in that sense, it's it's it, in, in in more ways than we saw in the early Neanody. It seems to me it approaches the New Testament and everything that the Church is asking, everything that Christ is asking that we leave the old world behind. Um, Nicodemus's, how am I going to be reborn? I can't go back and you know, to be reborn in the Spirit, to carry things forward, to be transformed, a new kind of life. The whole burden of the Aeneid is towards a new life, and he doesn't know what it's going to be. Um, so, the wanderings of Aeneas have been crucial. They, they took up the first half of the book. There are some people who speculate that Virgil read or had some acquaintance with the Old Testament. And I think there's some sense in that, because the parallel between what Aeneas does and the Jews in the desert is so striking. Um, He has to take a people into a new land. He doesn't know where he's going. Um, One of the major differences between the Aeneid and the Old Testament is that um, Moses knows that there's a promised land. Um, Aeneas doesn't know. Virgil does because remember he's already writing. He's in Rome. He's writing 1200 years after the Trojan War. But Aeneas doesn't. Aeneas constantly has to move forward, unclear about what his future is. And um, so the theme of vocation um, becomes clear, crystallized in the Aeneid. It was implicit in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it becomes explicit. He learns in a vision um, when Troy is falling and the city's being destroyed that he has to leave and go on and found a new world. Repeatedly he's given directions by the gods. He gets help from human beings. He always thinks he knows exactly what he's gonna do. He goes on and finds that he's failed. He's um, made a mistake again. So the theme of location, being called on by God to do something. He has a divinely appointed task. He must carry it out. He has to give himself completely to it. Um, the theme of dying cities, every one of the cities that he visits, if you take a look at that, that, um, that other sheet, it's, it's this one here. Virgil's rewriting or translated in Homer. At the bottom, I put this up on the board, it got erased, and I didn't want to take the time. If you just draw lines from all these cities to Rome, you'll, you'll graphically get a good picture of what's going on. Um, every city that he he encounters or attempts to found has something wrong with it. Do you all have this sheet? It's
1: right
0: there, right? There, yeah. Um, You can add to this circle that I've tried to make there, Tyre. I put it on the board last time but it's not here because remember um, Dido came originally from Tyre. Um, Her brother killed her husband and forced her to flee. So at the center of Tyre's character is an act of treachery. Troy is, is not defeated by honorable combat. The Trojans are betrayed and tricked because the the Greeks um, lie. And not only that, they they lie in a way that blasphemes the gods. Um, That is, they use the gods to trick the the Trojans. So every one of the cities has at its heart some corruption, some spiritual flaw, which prevents it from fully realizing its good. Um, and Buthrotum, if you remember, was the city that, that Aeneas encountered where he met Helenus and Andromeda. There he saw a miniature um, wall modeled on Troy's wall and a, on a running, or a rivulet, a brook that was called Xanthos, named after the, the river in. Um, Troy. The river's dried out, it's dying, um, and what Virgil is showing us is that um, in the struggle to move forward to discover this new life, um, it's too easy for some people to duplicate the past, to assume that they can just carry the past over and duplicate it. The, the effect of that is death. It's, it's Eliot's modern wasteland. That the river's dried up, it's dying. The past cannot be du- duplicated. There's something creative in nature. It's almost as if he anticipated St. Augustine and the idea that creation never stops. If you've read the Confessions, you know at the end of the Confessions, he talks about um, philosophic matters and he, and he explores the the creation, the act of creation, and, and argues that the act of creation is ongoing, that God didn't stop with the creation of the world, that it continues forward. Virgil implicitly understands that Um, um, at the heart of the Aeneid is this sense that we're all involved in a mystery, that we have to keep going, that there's something creative going on, something new ahead of us. If we ever settle into a past and it becomes set, then in some ways we die. It's T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, That's, that's probably the best modern work on that theme. So the theme of dying cities, whatever Rome is, we talked about, whatever Rome is, it's the antithesis to these things. Um, Rome cannot come into being on the on the basis of what we take from these other cities. It's got to be something radically different. So um, we've been seeing at every point that Aeneas is a new kind of hero. Um, um, and what what Virgil is doing in the Aeneid radically changes the, um, the ideals that we took from the Greek heroes, Achilles and, and Odysseus. Kleos, remember, was the ideal the, the ideal at the center of the Iliad. That um, At the heart of that work was this idea that there is this human worth that each person has but it was degraded because in the Iliad people identify um, the worth of a human being in terms of material wealth booty. Um, A man is only as good as whatever his material goods. So that's why people kill each other, to take this booty, it's a way of, um, in modern words, it would be like a way of validating or empowering them. Um, And Achilles steps outside of that code um, and gives everything up. And we, we talked about that. It was on that basis that he, he discovered this power. Once he'd given everything up, he had nothing to be afraid of. He couldn't lose. It, it's at that point when he goes back into the war that nobody can touch him. Um, because it, it's clear that everybody else is, whether they know it or not, are, are um, paralyzed in some way by their fears. They're still holding on to things. Achilles has let it all go. Now, in that sense, it seems like Aeneas, but I want to come back to that. Nostos was the great theme of the Odyssey, a homecoming, going home. And we saw that um, Odysseus couldn't get home until he learned about all these metaphysical realities, the the underlying archetypes of all things. Because it's only by learning that that he can learn about himself and know the things that he has to do with himself to get home. if you remember that line that I, I read um, when we finished the Odyssey, um, I made the point that um, women in the Odyssey take a variety of forms. They are guides, they are helpers, they are temptresses, they are goal, and um, they define the lives of men. Odysseus is trying to get home to his wife. Athena is the guide, she helps him. Um, He has to deal with Calypso and and, um, Circe who are temptresses. So there are these various aspects to the feminine that he has to learn to deal with if he's gonna get home and bring order to his house. So there's no way for him to get home without directly and deeply learning to understand the nature of of woman, good and bad. and I read that line, if you remember, um, it, 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 it's only when he becomes lawful that woman becomes something other than death. To the suitors, Penelope's death, just like the sirens and um, Scylla and Charybdis. Um, woman presents herself potentially in the image of death because there's something fatal to what she presents to man. It's only when he makes himself lawful that she becomes something other than death. Um, Being lawful.
1: Ordering,
0: ordering, ordering the soul, the soul. Okay. bringing it in accord to his own nature. Yeah, I wish I had that. I didn't bring it today. Um, is that clear? The, um, the suitors are going to die because what they present to Penelope are these lawful disorders of the soul. They, they want her for the wrong reasons. Odysseus comes home and defeats them. To defeat them in one way, allegorically is an expression that he himself has overcome that swarming disorder that they represent. Otherwise, how can he defeat them? So to Penelope to those men is death. It's what will happen to a man whose response to a woman takes that form. Odysseus, learns to deal with these things and put his soul in order and, it, and the sign of that is overcoming the, the disorders that the suitors present to his home and the two of them making love you know, towards the end we, we, we looked at that scene when Athena stops time they're brought into the present this eternal moment they make love um, the two are at peace with each other in a sense they're reconciled so we see the possibilities of human marriage and we see the possibilities of Of a real integrity to the human soul. That's that's the world we we left when we put Homer aside. Now in one sense you can say Aeneas is no different from Achilles because Aeneas has to give everything up just like Achilles did and he's got a home so in some sense he, he resembles those Greek heroes but in fundamental ways he's different, radically different. Everything that Achilles does he does for his sense of self-honor. Everything that Odysseus has to give up is to get home to a wife and a father and a son who's already there. So in Virgil's mind, the Greek world is far too individualistic, far too self-centered. So we've been seeing again and again and again the, the Virgil's critique of the Homeric world. Aeneas has to give everything up but always with a sense of his identity with his men. We've seen that again and again. We've looked at passages together and the readings that we've gone through. He never does anything except with a sense of a common good. He's always looking out for his men. And um, so the, the notion of Cleus, the heroic honor identified with man, radically changes The sense of a homecoming changes too because Odysseus is going to a home that's already there. Aeneas is going on to a home that's unrealized. It's always just beyond the next turn. um, So even though these two basic notions um, that that were given to us in the Greek world are there, they're also radically changed by what Virgil does with (coughs) them. Okay, let me just, um, um, in Book 7, Aeneas makes his landing in Italy, we will look at a couple of things there. It's interesting to see how the, the change that takes place when he comes to Italy, having left the Greek world, because we're immediately confronted with visions and omens and oracles, when they arrive, if you remember, Ascanius and, the, and the, the soldiers are eating their meals, and they're on these leaves, these big leaves. and Acanius makes this joke. He says, look, we're eating our tables. And that was the prophecy that, um, the, that the harpy had given, that they will know their home when they're eating their tables. It sounds like a ridiculous thing, but there it is. So out of nowhere... They suddenly realize that they're home. Aeneas immediately performs a ceremony to commemorate the the moment. And all of the men say, finally, we're home. So it's the first time since the beginning of the book that the men have a sense, does that mean their dangers are over? They're only going to get worse because now what they're going to face are constant wars. So being home, again, think about the differences between this and the Greek world. Being home... (laughs) There's not mean order, security, a piece of cake. The the last part of the book is the Iliad again. There's going to be nothing but killing and battles. So coming home is no assurance that there's going to be comfort or security or peace. There are going to be battles. Um, Ascanius has his vision, Um, Latinus the king is given an omen. There are these bees swarming around the laurel tree, and a light appears behind Lavinia, his daughter's head. (coughs) And he asks (coughs) his father, the seer, to read the oracle. And he tells them that Lavinia is destined to marry a man from another world, so that we know that Aeneas and Lavinia will be married. It's a a new sense of marriage, completely different from this world. Amata and Ternus become outraged because Ternus was promised Lavinia as a bride. So he looks at Aeneas like Paris. So that to the Trojans, Aeneas is a. They know the Trojan War. It's part of the lore that everybody in the world knows about the Trojan War. He looks at Aeneas as a violator, taking his bride. So it's on the basis of that, that he goes to war with Latinus. But at the center of this is this this other vision. That the the gods have made it clear that a new marriage will be formed here. Um, So what Turnus doesn't see, he sees Aeneas as an intruder, uh, somebody coming in and unlawfully taking, because that's the way it appears, right? It looks just the same way Menelaus would have looked at Paris. He's taking his woman. What he doesn't see is there's this divine sanction. There's a whole divine dimension behind this that he doesn't see. And what was the, oh, the, and then the, um, that night when Aeneas is by the river, the river god appears to him and tells him that he will have this vision of a sow. He's already been told that earlier. <coughs> um, and he sends him on to Evander to make Elias so that he can um, he, he can answer the civil wars that are going on in Italy. As he sets off down the river, he, he sees the sow and its thirty piglets, this big, white, giant sow. And we talked about the, the importance of that, because remember the, the, um, the um, icon, is that the word? Yeah, the icon, the idol of um, Carthage was the spirited war horse. To show their nobility, that we know that Carthage will through that image, that's an that's an image that that in, that tells us what Carthage's identity is. It's spirited and noble, warlike. The the icon defining Rome is a big white pig and its piglets. It's ugly, homely, ordinary, unheroic. It's an image of of Rome's universality. That all people will be there. So, and it's nurturing. So in some ways it's the, it's the antithesis to Carthage. It's why the two of them were always at war. Um, so immediately we're, we're taken with all these wonders and prophecies and omens. We've entered a new world. Different things are happening right now that involve mysteries. We've left this Greek world. Something strange is afoot. Um, um, Rome is torn apart by civil wars. Different tribes are at war with each other. We get that pretty quickly Quickly, and Aeneas is gonna get caught up in them. Turnus is gonna to go to war against King Latinus and um, Latinus doesn't want anything to do with war. Pulls out of it, and Neas is left alone to fight these wars. So, we've entered the world of the Iliad, except once again radically changed. There's a divine work um, um, going on um, that he's a part of. Okay, let me let me just. That's just a, a quick review of what we've been doing for those of you who. Um, who are just coming in, or I don't know if you've read the Aeneid. It would be good if you did, if, if you can't you know, do the best you can. I want to look at a couple of things. Um, there's only a few scenes in the um, Aeneid that I want to look at this morning. Um, they're a set up for next week. Um, I want to um, turn to page 87. I want to go back to the scene of the dying cities. Remember this is in book 2 and 3 when Aeneas is in Dido's court. He's telling the story of his wanderings, trying to bring his people to this new world. And he doesn't know where it is. Um, I want to just point out two things that we didn't cover when we went over the cities last week. On Page 86, he comes to the island of the Cyclops. This is, remember, this is the parallel to Odysseus and his wandering. But there are fundamental changes all along. If you remember from the Odyssey, when Odysseus Odysseus landed on the island of the Cyclops, Homer describes him as as having this curiosity, he wanted to find out. it's so clear that that is not what motivates um, Aeneas. Virgil's probably one of the best readers of Homer that's ever existed Is Virgil, and we know it by what he does. Um, Take a look on page 86 and seven. They come to the land of the Cyclops. There's nothing said about curiosity. Odysseus was curious to find out what happened. He ends up in the Cyclops cave, and half a dozen of the men are killed. So, the, res, the result, the consequence of his curiosity, is the loss of his own men. Virgil knows that, and what Virgil's saying is you can't lose track of what your goal is, that you can't allow yourself to be distracted by curiosity, because the effect of it for Odysseus was the loss of his men. So, notice that Aeneas doesn't do anything like what Odysseus did. On page 86 at the bottom, they're there on the Cyclops Island, the bottom of 86, then suddenly out of the forest at the last extremity of hunger came the strange shape of a man in pitiful condition, his arms wide to beg for mercy. We took in the sight, his filth, his uncut beard, his ragged shirt, and he's and he's distraught. He looks almost mad in grief. Top of 87, in heaven's name, he said, by all the powers I beg you, over oh, the light and ere we breathe, take me with you, Trojans. Anywhere at all would be good enough for me. I am, I know it, one of the Danans. Remember, he's an enemy to the Trojans. This was a the Greek; they were enemies. the The, the, the Trojan War was uh, put the pitted the two of them against each other. I won't deny I fought to take Troy's gods. For that, if so much harm came of our devilry, cut me to bits, scatter me, drop me in the sea, if I must die. Death at the hands of men would be a favor. Whatever he's facing there, death would be better. So he's really clear. He, he wants to be taken away, but he knows their enemies. But if they're going to do something, he'd rather they kill him than leave him where he is, because whatever he's facing is so much worse. So they regard this guy, and then they, um, they get this story. I am an Ithacan of Ulysses' company that man beset by trouble, Archimeneides, I'm called, my father, he gives the story. Um, and so he's been living on the Cyclops island and, and probably scared to death that he'll be eaten by the Cyclops. You know, um, So he's doing everything he can to avoid them. What's going on? This man is a citizen of Ithaca. He was of Odysseus's company. Did we ever have, did we ever hear about him? Was any mention made of him in the Odyssey? So what's going on?
1: Virgil's,
0: (laughs) he is so good. Virgil's showing us once again Odysseus' failure. Odysseus went on and left this man behind. Would Virgil, would Aeneas ever do that? Absolutely not. I mean, this is Virgil's invention. There's no Archimonides in the Odyssey. This is Virgil, um, re- once again, redoing Homer. So when Aeneas comes here, he's not going into a cave, he's not motivated by curiosity, he's not going to put his men at risk. And in addition to all that, he discovers this man that Odysseus left behind. So right from the beginning, we don't have time to recount it. Remember all the bad things said about Odysseus. He was the one behind the treachery. He was motivated by greed. And here we see how irresponsible he was, careless he was. So Virgil just keeps adding to the critique of this Greek world. One more thing. um, um, Turn to page 195. This is just after Aeneas leaves the underworld and they're, they're about to make a landing in Italy. So he's finally approaching the land that will be his home. This is where, this is the end towards which he's been moving all along. At the top of the page, this is the first page of um, chapter seven, book seven. Nurse Caeta of Aeneas, in death you too conferred your fame through ages on our coast, still honored in your last bed as you are, and if this glory matters in the end, your name tells of your grave in great Hesperia. When he had seen Cata's funeral performed, her mound of tomb heaped up, Aeneas waited until the sea went down, then declared her harbor under sail. In tonight, the soft south wind blew on, he sails on. How does this line up with the Odyssey? This is his nurse. Where was Odysseus's nurse? Do you remember who she was? Eurycleia? Remember when Odysseus got home? I don't know how many of you when Odysseus got home, remember he was in disguise. He had to feel it's things out. That, that night when he goes up to visit with Penelope's <laughs> Sergeant His
1: nurse recognizes yes. yes. By the scar. Scar, good.
0: Yeah, that night. When he visits Penelope, she doesn't even recognize him. Penelope does, his wife, Um, whatever the disguise is. But um, Penelope asks Eurycleia, the nurse, to bathe his feet. And while she's bathing him, she recognizes the scar and she knows that that's Odysseus. Remember, we talked about that because the the scar took us into his background, how he got named. Odysseus means um, unpleasant. That wherever he goes, he will bring pain. I talked about him as being the norm, because if we're in the presence of virtuous people, they always make our lives uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, isn't it true, and and, and usually in in those moments when we're virtuous, people around us are a little bit uncomfortable.
1: um,
0: So, um, your client was the nurse. Um, What's Virgil doing? Odysseus had a nurse to go home to. A nurse to look after his son, to look after the mother. Here the nurse is gone. There's,
1: huh? Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. There can be, not, uh, once again, all of these attachments to things that make you, like Achilles, all of these attachments only make people more dependent and weaker. So the whole move towards Rome, if Rome means anything, it means giving up everything. The cost of it is nothing less than everything. There's not anything that Aeneas hasn't had to give up. We've, we've talked about the losses from the beginning. First book, they lose the ship. Second book, the city, his wife, Creusa. We already know his father's dead. He just died when the book began. So his city, his father, his wife, his land... Um, over and over and over again, he has to keep giving up. If he's going to go on, whatever Rome is, Rome means giving up everything. It's—I mean—I can hear Christ saying, "Follow me, give it." So, in some amazing ways, Virgil is anticipating Christ. He's saying, "Whatever Rome is, the cost of bringing it into being is giving up nothing less than everything." We can't hold anything back. New marriage, and it's not Dido in Book Four. He has to give up. You know, there's nothing he doesn't have to give up to go on. I said it on Monday. <laughs> the Aeneid is not for faint hearts. <laughs> this book is not for faint hearts. What what Virgil is showing? If we if we look at my take, I mean, you know, this is my presentation that the. The alien and the Odyssey are founding works. They belong with Genesis and Exodus. They are the founding works of Western civilization. They give us these heroic images, these images of this inherent dignity that man's been given. God created us with this this extraordinary kind of dignity. This inherent, the Protestant Reformation takes it away and the scientific worldview takes it away. Says we're from apes. The ancient view is that there's this extraordinary dignity that we have as humans. So we have these wonderful images in Achilles and Odysseus. Virgil takes them well beyond, well beyond. It's not only giving up everything, but carrying everybody with you. Not just yourself. What what you're doing, everything you sacrifice for, involves this larger common good. It's far more universal, it's far more communal, Virgil's critique of the Greek world is that it was far too individualistic. If you look at America today, America, because, I mean, I'm just repeating myself, but America is the new Rome. That's our model. It's it's the modern commercial republic based on Rome. If you look at America today, the tension in America is between those things in America that encourage us to be individualistic, I mean, is, can there be any confusion about that in our country? Everything about our country says, excel, be better than somebody else, get above somebody else, um, step over people, better yourself. Celebrities, the sports heroes are, are, all of them encourage. The more money you get, we're in the world of the Iliad. The more money that you get, the presumably the better you are as a person. That's one aspect of America. And the other aspect is the common good that we are a people united. And think about the tensions between those in our character today. But the roots of them are here. These are our origins. So, so he's just lost um, Kite, the nurse. Now, one more thing before I, um, um, where is, I want to look at that passage where Scanius. I have to wait till next. Um, let me let me just recount it and you can uh, I'll find it next week. When we come to Italy here what we see with the death of Caeta is that Aeneas has finally left that Greek world behind. So that whole world now is of the past. What he's going to face now that he's lost everything, given up everything, are wars and a new future. So it's, it's not as if getting clear of the past will make his, it's a guarantee that his life will be easier because it won't, he's going to be facing wars. Um, but one of the things that happens in, it's in, I think it's in book eight, um, when, um, when Turnus attacks the, the, uh, um, the fort, where Ascanius and all the other Trojans are. Aeneas has gone upstream to meet with Evander and um, Turnus attacks the... I'll, I'll find it next week. Um, but, but I want to hold this up just to, to finish with these parallels between the two worlds. The Trojans um, are under attack. There's this fort that they've made while Aeneas has gone upstream. Turnus is attacking them. And Turnus's, I think it was his brother-in-law, begins to taunt the Trojans. Ascanius pulls out a bow, this is Aeneas's son, pulls out a bow and shoots the guy because he's 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 hurling these humiliating taunts, calling the Trojans effeminate. feminine. These men from another world, they're not warrior men. Ascanius pulls out his bow and kills this man. And he, he gives a prayer to Apollo, and Apollo answers and makes sure that he's sure-sighted, and the men praise him and say, on this day, you know, you, you've entered manhood. And it's clear that in that moment he does. Now, how does that line up with the Odyssey? Can any of you recall what would be the parallel in the Odyssey? Hmm. When... Can I make Go, yeah.
1: Yeah. But, uh, I know he yelled his cry. When? It's, it's
0: the, the, the night before the, the battle between Odysseus and the suitors, Odysseus makes a prayer to the gods, and there's a taking of the Ospides. The woman cries out. For all of you who are here, you remember it. The gods answer it. So we. it's an omen. Um, the next day, Odysseus is going to take on the suitors. Penelope arranges to finally settle the marriage question by having the bow contest because it's time for her to move on. Um, So she brings out the bow, all the suitors try to string the bow, none of them can string it, which means nobody's in a position to take Odysseus' place, as husband. Telemachus picks up the bow and he's about ready to string it and Odysseus stops him and at that moment takes it and he fires the first arrow and you remember he kills the and Tinus, the lead suitor, and the battle starts. But we know in that moment that Telemachus has reached manhood because he could have strung that bow. But Odysseus wants to take over and initiate the war. He's the one in charge. Now, what's the difference? What's, what's the difference? What's Virgil doing in changing that scene? Well, Anais isn't there. Sorry?
1: I mean, it's,
0: his I mean, father's his not father's there, there, one, yeah. which is not a small thing. Odysseus is right next to Telemachus. I mean, that's so important. His dad's not there. His, this is such an amazing world. Such amazing. His, his father's not around. What else? Did, uh, uh, Telemachus doesn't shoot the first arrow. And he doesn't. and we, we never get a description of doing what Ascanius does. Ascanius kills this man. He stands out among these warriors. He makes his first kill. His first act is to kill a man. Um, We know he's going to be a good soldier. He's learned how to serve. Aeneas has taught him how to serve. He's he's with his father and all these things. He's learned how to serve, to give up. So the differences couldn't be, in my mind, couldn't be more radical. It's like doing away with a nurse. He has to, how'd you put it? He has to do it on his own. Is that has, what you? Yeah. yeah he has without to the nurse. With yeah, how'd you put take,
1: it? I think he's, I said he has to take care of himself. So has to
0: take care him of himself, and that's exactly what Ascanius does. So, and answer this question just generally. Imagine a child being raised in a Greek world, and imagine a child being raised in this Roman world. What would the difference be between those two children, between those two families? That's a loaded, I know that's a really loaded kind of question, but... Mm. Wouldn't the child in the Roman world be less attached to things and more independent? And less fearful because he was less dependent on things? More ready to give himself for a greater good? He certainly would be less attached to things. I mean, the great irony is we see in in both Achilles and Odysseus that they have to give up everything in some ways. You know, they're great heroes. But never with a sense of a greater good that we see in Aeneas. So even though there are parallels and similarities, there are fundamental differences still between this Greek and this Roman world.
1: But in our world, we still have both kinds of people. You, you
0: still have some that are independent and some... For sure. Yeah, and the whole gamut, the whole range between. I mean, there are gradations everywhere. For sure, yeah. I, I'm just holding this up to like two poles to try to um, clarify the differences between them because it seems to me the differences are real. It's just, Another way of putting it, it is, is it, it, I hope it's clear how important the Greek world is for Virgil. He honors it everywhere, but he's critiquing it always, always. And the differences between them are fundamental. I mean, just in this one thing, Caetha's gone, we've been, from the very beginning we've been watching this, and here Ascanius is under attack in the fort and he kills, he kills a man. This is so different from Telemachus. I think the ideal of the human person here is a greater independence, a greater freedom, a greater strength, and a greater sense of a common good that that they carry within them, it's a part of who they are, far more than did the Greeks. Well, I think
1: also from what you said, and it's been such a long time since I've read any of these, uh, but from what you said, in the first instance, um, it's. This is the way you do it. And this is the way you're always going to do it, and you follow what I tell you to do, and that's it. With with the Aeneid, it's okay. This is our heritage, but we're always going to be moving forward. You always have to become. You always have to, and 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 I don't mean individually necessarily, but societally, um, as as human beings, that you you need to be moving. Forward. Forward mm-hmm. and to something that
0: is better. And mysterious.
1: And mysterious.
0: You're always in, I mean, I, 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 yes, and I, and I would want to say really starkly that in the Aeneid you're always entering a mystery. Mm-hmm. What it, what, whatever clarity you have about what you do, it involves a sense of mystery, always.
1: But, but also, I mean, if, if that's true. But in, in the Greeks, it, it, there's not a sense of mystery necessarily, and there's some protection because you kind of know. Whereas um, the, the joy of the Aeneid is that um, you really don't know, but you know you are striving for something better. Um, as, as well, it's, it's, it seems to me, if you're, if you're trying to bring everyone with you, giving up everything, but you're bringing everyone along with you, then you are moving towards something that you are hoping is going to be better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It may, it
1: may be tough.
0: It's not maybe. It will for sure be tough. I mean, you can't escape it here. Have you guys seen the movie The Gladiator? I want to. We're yes. going re- to read a couple of passages and stuff. Have you all seen The Gladiator? Yes. Yes. There's. It's a really good Russell. Crow is a gladiator, and I Damon. I don't remember the black guy, the actor's name, but i just just—he's got this extraordinary face. He's the black guy in the movie that that ends up being Crow's companion. They they, they, they go into the arena together so often and come out surviving. He's a beautiful human being. He's got a wonderful face. Um, Crow dies at the end, and the last scene that closes the movie is of this black guy who was his friend. Taking Crow's little statue of a god, and it's, it, it reminds me of uh, Ishmael in Moby Dick. He's always articulating it. He's always engaging with his god. Crow did it in the movie. He would take earth, and so there was something attaching him to the earth that he acknowledged in everything he did. It's like the dust to dust. He, before he went into battle, he would always pick up mm-hmm. some dirt. and seemed to me that it was always sort of pre- it was the Ash Wednesday to dust to the dust. There was that sense about Crow. Um, Anyway, he had this little god, and he would articulate it. He would engage with it. And at the end of the movie, after he's gone, the black guy has it at the end of the movie. And he, I can't remember if he's burying it, he was going to bury it, or he was engaging with it. It reminds me of it's like, for me, it's like a, um, a, um, a foreshadowing of communion, the Eucharist. Truly, for me. He's engaging with his god, and, and, and he says, I will see you again. It's, crow, "I will see you again. I will see you again, but not yet." And I thought that was one of the most perfect descriptions of Rome that I've ever encountered in my life in a work of you know, art, that Rome is always, remember Aeneas in, in his vocation, following the gods, following their instructions, turning a corner, thinking just then he's going to come to his end, realizing just then that it, gets, it eludes him and he has to go on. So the nature of Rome is that you carry this past ahead. You're always bearing it, the burden of it, um, and thinking that your end is just around the corner. But it eludes you, it escapes you, and goes on. So the nature of Rome is that there's this extraordinary thing for Virgil. Rome, Rome will not be just this, this thing of mortar and bricks. and There will be a city there. He knows that. It will be founded but the whole nature of it is predicated on this sense that there is something more still to do, not yet. Now, think about how that anticipates Christ, and I want to leave it there, I don't want to go into that. Um, Because for Virgil there was some sense that um, Rome would be founded, but there's something in the nature of Rome itself um, which asks us to keep going. Because if we ever settle Something's wrong. I mean, you can look. You can take this to Dante for Dante. We're always meant to be learning until we die. It's in our nature to keep learning, to keep doing something. I want to take um, just a few minutes to um, um, to look at Dido before we, and then um, some things that happens with Aeneas once he gets. Were you going to talk about the the underworld? Just yeah, we're getting there. Yes, yes. God. Oh, Tom keeping me
1: honest.
0: <laughs> here, by the way, I wanted to say this. I, just, I forgot at the beginning. We're doing in four meetings what at UD we do in a couple of months, meeting three times a week. You know, we're trying to condense the Aeneid into four meetings when in school we usually do it in a dozen. You know, I mean, it's just there's so much going on here that we just can't give ourselves to, but anyway, but, um, take a look at um, page 100. Oh, sorry, it's earlier, let's see. Um, page 101, this is the day when um, Aeneas and Dino meet in the cave with the storm and they um, consummate sexually the relationship. She calls it a marriage and in doing that she violates her promise to her husband because she vowed once her brother killed her husband that she would never marry again. So, um, um, the, the building ceases. So this great enterprise that defined Carthage for a time stops. The two of them are engaged together and, and make their lives with each other more important than other things. Aeneas has lost his vocation. He, he is, he is in one. I mean, in the best sense we can say, it's the respite that he's been looking for. It's a relief from the struggles that, that they have been overbearing. It's much easier for him to do what he's doing now so the two of them are sexually engaged. On page 104, Mercury comes to him after a year. (coughs) At the bottom of 104, alighting tiptoe on the first huntments, there he found Aeneas laying foundations for the new towers and homes. He noted well the sword belt, the sword hilt the man wore adorned with yellow jasper and a cloak aglow with Tyrian dye upon his shoulders gifts of the wealthy queen. Go down a few lines. Is it for you to lay the stones for Carthage high walls, tame husband that you are, and build their city? Look at the image of Aeneas. He's effeminate. This is not the warrior. He's got a jewel-studded sword now and jewelry on his cape. It's the signs of of a man having given in to his lusts and and left his vocation. his hair stands on end. She's terrified. He goes to Dido and tells her he has to leave. She, her first response is, delay it. She, I mean, it's interesting to watch her. She's trying to do everything she can. To, delaying It's not going to change anything, but the first thing she asks is time. Let us have time. On page 111 in the middle, let him bestow one last gift on his mistress, this to await fair winds and easier flight. All she wants is to prolong it, you know, even though it's inevitable that he leaves. Um, She builds a funeral pyre, um, and on, um, turn to 118, she builds a funeral pyre, she's intending to kill herself, she uses the term magic, that she's going to keep him by magic, and this is extraordinary because there is this, an irony, because while in one sense she has no magic, and in another sense she does, because what she does right now will put a curse on him that's going to remain with him and stay with Rome for the next 1,200 years. So even though, even though it seems ridiculous, I mean you, you know, she can't use magic, she, she does. Um, because she won't let him go. And if you've read The Underworld, you know that when she meets him there, the two meet, she spurns him. It's one of the great spurns in literature. She, she, she bears her grudge against him still, so the, the wound for Aeneas won't go away. Take a look at this curse. This is so crucial. Page 118. <coughs> um middle of the page, if by necessity that, imp- that impious wretch must find his haven and come safe to land, if so, Job's destinies require, and this his end in view, must stand yet all the same. When hard beset in war by brave people forced to go outside his boundaries and torn from Elis, let him beg assistance. Let him see the unmerited deaths of those around and with him, and accepting peace on unjust terms, let him not, even so, Enjoy his kingdom or the life he longs for, but fall in battle before his time and lie unburied on the sand. This I implore. This is my last cry. As my last blood flows, then O my Trinians, besiege with hate his progeny and all his race to come. Make this your offering to my dust. No love, no pact must be between our peoples. No, but rise up from my bones, avenging spirit, harry with fire and sword, the Danon countrymen, now or hereafter, at whatever time the strength will be afforded. This is the source, clearly for Virgil, this is the source of the Punic Wars. Twelve hundred years later, Rome and Carthage will be at war. For for two centuries they will fight each other. Virtually destroy each other. Rome's almost destroyed in one of them. And finally, because they were so close to being destroyed themselves, they, they, they defeat Carthage and then raise it to the ground. Um, go on over um, page 220. As she watches his ship leave port and go out to sea, she climbs the pyre that she built, sets a fire to it, and then kills herself. Middle of 120, a screen pierced the high channels Now through the shock city rumor went rioting as walls and songs with women's outcry echoed in the palace and heaven's high air gave back the beating din as though all Carthage or old tire fell to storming enemies and out of hand flames billeted on the roofs of men and gods. Her sister heard and trembling faint with terror, lacerating her face, beating her breast, ran through the crowd to call the dying queen. That's a proleptic image. It's it's an anticipatory. It anticipates Carthage falling. That's an image of of what will actually happen 1,200 years later, and Virgil knows it. What Virgil's showing us, and this is extraordinary. Think about how different this is from what Omer does with Calypso and Circe. Um, He has to leave her even though he doesn't want to. He goes to her and says, "I, I have to do this against my will. He leaves her. Her response, this is the noble woman. And and remember, her her reason is her pride. She says, what am I gonna do now when all of these men who used to court me that that I refused will laugh at me? So it's her sense of her own pride, the scorn that she feels that leads to her suicide. How different this is from Rome. It's her pride as a woman that she would have to turn on page 115 in the middle, look now, what can I do? Turn once again to the old suitors and he laughed at. Um, Think about how different this is from Homer's treatment of Circe and Calypso. What Virgil is showing us is that the causes of the Punic Wars have their origins 1200 years earlier in Aeneas's dalliances, his sin, it's like David this dalliance with Dido. And the other thing about it is if if we see this, this curse that she places on him, that all your generations, your prosody, lie under this, they'll all be, you'll be at war forever. Um, the other extraordinary irony to this is Aeneas is implicated in those wars. He helped bring them about. Think how a Roman must have read this in the year 70, you know, after the Punic Wars were over. I mean anybody who could read well, I would think most people wouldn't read well, but any reader, any R- Roman who read well would see that Virgil sees that Aeneas is implicated in those wars. It was his irresponsibility is not enough of a not a strong enough word, but his downings, his sexual dalliance. So for Virgil, we talked about it last time. His whole grasp of sexuality is so much deeper and in so many ways darker than Homer's. Remember, um, um, Aeneas doesn't go through the cryptus and Scylla. He avoids them. He, when he comes to Caeda episode and Circe um, is off the coast, he bypasses Circe. When we first come to Lap, when he goes to Evander's um, city to, to Make a truce with him, we get this story of Hercules defeating the, mon- the miniature figure, the Cacus figure. And Circe was absolutely in- involved in that. So, everywhere Virgil is saying the sexual sins are somehow the gravest. This disorder between men and women um, is at the root of these conflicts. Different from Homer? The, the cause of the Iliad, the, the Trojan War that led to the destruction of the city was what? Paris taking Helen. Does he look at it? It's buried. Aeneas looks at it, I mean Virgil looks at it squarely. So Virgil is really clear that, that humans, men and women, have to be on guard. The, 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 the consequences of the sexual act go so far beyond any immediate consequences as we see them. So. When, when we talk about origins or beginnings or causes, and we, and, and we get this image of Dido's curse, and then the image of this you know, she's burning the fire, it's an image of Carthage itself burning. That's a proleptic image of what will happen, which is going to happen exactly in that way, 1,200 years later. So, to think about this, you know, we, I, kinda, I sort of laugh, not laugh, but it's not the right word, but when we hear politicians talking about solving the Islam problem or, you know, the... Mm. Virgil's so clear that the causes of these things lie centuries earlier. That if we're going to ever deal with our problems, somebody has to be clear-sighted enough to know there are things that we can do immediately, but the roots of them are centuries earlier. That that what's gonna be asked is far greater than most politicians wanna let on, or maybe even see. Or if we take Virgil seriously. I do, so. Okay, two last things and then we'll stop because I'm already holding you. We're, 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 let me just touch on a, a couple of things in the underworld. Um, Tom's gonna be disappointed in me. Two things about the underworld. Um, um, on page six, Couple of things. First, and maybe most importantly, it's typical of psychologists, people raised in the sciences today, to look at the underworld in the ancient world um, as an image, a metaphor for the unconscious. But we enter that dark world of archetypes. Remember, it was everywhere in the Odyssey. There wasn't anything that wasn't dealing with the unconscious in Odysseus's world. Clips of Circe or all archetypes. Um, That's a tendency of the modern mind that tends to be very skeptical and tends to be literalist, materialist. Um, Remember my my presentation of this work is that they're prophetic because in these poets they always look at something up close that's connected to something far away. It's that prophetic distance brought together. That there's much more going on in the present moment than we see and that's what makes them prophetic as poets. Um, most moderns take the underworld as a metaphor for the unconscious. It has to be said that's, not tr- that's true in one respect, but in another more important respect, it's, it's, it's crucial to remember, it's a, it's a treatment of what, for these poets, was objectively real. It's not just a metaphor for the unconscious because all of these poets believe that the afterlife was obje- it had an objective reality apart from the unconscious. That what men, the, 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 the souls of men are immortal. They survive death. We saw that in the Iliad. We saw in the Odyssey. The souls go on to another life. What they, what, the, the form they take in the other life depends on what they've done in this life. So they go into the afterlife and carry with them the, whatever their deeds are. We saw that in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. In Virgil, that afterlife is far more differentiated. Virgil's aware of the differences between men and the actions that they do. So there's a clear Tartarus. There's a clear Ephesian Fields. There's a dark place in hell and a blessed place. The good and you know the, it's like Dante's the damned and the saved. So, the afterlife in Virgil's world is far more differentiated, there are more places, it's more finely differentiated than in Homer's um, Odyssey. So, most important thing, for these poets, the afterlife has an objective reality. It is real, it's there, it's not just a reflection of the unconscious of man, even though we learn something about the unconscious by going into it. Is that clear? Mm Look on page 160. When Aeneas comes to the Sibyl's cave to enter the underworld, he talks with her and he has to find a golden bough. And the golden bough is twin form. It's natural and artificial. It's gold and natural. It's Virgil's way of recognizing the importance of those two things, the importance of art and nature. Without it, he can't enter it. But look at what he meets on the wall of the cave on page 160, he gets the story of the Minotaur. If you all remember that, um, um, King Minos made a, a deal with um, Apollo that, um, um, to, to, to give him some sign that he would be a leader. Apollo made an arrangement with him and and gave him this beautiful, shining bull, as I remember it. It's so long since I've thought about this stuff, but Minos takes it and he makes a bargain with Apollo to sacrifice that bull yearly. He doesn't keep his promise with Apollo, men have been doing this all the way through the Iliad. His wife becomes enamored of that bull and mates with it and produces the Minotaur, which is half bull, half man. And remember, the labyrinth is that maze um, that, it, that Theseus has to get to in order to um, s- um, sacrifice the Minotaur, get rid of it, in order to save the people in Athens, because annually, Athenians have to send sacrifices to that bull to keep Minos, the king, from killing them. So there's a great political story behind it. It's, think about the importance of this. Why does Virgil put this story at the beginning of the underworld? Now, I want to put this in as as human terms as I could. When a man who has more physical strength than a woman, I'm going to make that assertion even though it's not popular today. When a man who has um, greater physical strength than a woman combines that strength with lust, what's produced? I'd say it's a bull. It's the minotaur. That the, the Minotaur man bull is an image of what men become when their lusts become greater than their ability to control them. That there's something bull-like. Dante is going to show this really clearly. All of Greek literature is filled with this stuff of how monstrous human. We we are the most mon- potentially the most monstrous of creatures because when we go bad. We go worse than animals. Animals can be savage, but never like humans because we have intellects. So we always become worse. So I'm going to offer this interpretation, that the Minotaur is an image of that in us, men, when we, we allow the lust to become greater than anything else and combine with power. Minos's wife, what does it say about a woman who's attracted to a bull like that? I think of celebrity women and, I mean, women, I mean, you don't have to look very far. How many women get attracted to a man because there's something... Uh, bull-like. <laughs> no, not bull-like. Um, it's like it's There's something Powell. very masculine, yeah, powerful masculine, that they're so attracted to the, sexual, the sense of sexual prowess. Put it that way. Get, keep the bull out. But what happens when they become involved with him? One you're into the marriage, they're fighting and killing because what she, what she discovers is what a bully is. What he discovers is how infatuated she is with that in him. So they're correlated. It's not like the man's the beast here. So is the woman. She mated with him. She produced the Minotaur. So why this? Is everybody following? Why this story? Here, this sexual sin again. Because what Aeneas is going to be facing in Italy is this labyrinth. And remember what I've been saying for the last couple of meetings. There's nothing that Aeneas faces that Virgil himself doesn't face in exactly the same way as poet. Because if Virgil's gonna find it, remember Daedalus is the artist figure who escapes the maze. Port, Jane Joyce's portrait of artist. It's the artist who escapes because it's it, the, 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 the labyrinth in one sense, is an image of human consciousness and its maze-like quality. That's what the labyrinth has always been, a metaphor for human consciousness. If Virgil is going to finish this work, the Aeneid, and, and the work is going to be what he hoped it would be, he's going to have to face this maze in himself. He's going to have to answer all these things, and so is Aeneas. Aeneas is gonna to have to meet it in himself, in Turnus, in Amata. Turnus' wife who goes nuts. So I don't think this is an accident. This labyrinth figure at the beginning of the second half, the Iliad half of the Aeneid. Remember the first half is the Odyssey, the second half is the Aeneid. He's, he's left the Greek world. He's turned away from all those disorders, all those dependencies. Clear sailing? He's entering a maze, because now it's going to get even harder. Um, just, I just want to... We don't have time to look at things, but I just... Um, he's he's spurned by Dido. I just want to look at one thing. Um, on page 190, he comes to the Elysian fields, and he meets his father, and his father finally gives clarity to this divinely appointed mission that he's had all along. He's continuing to get it wrong. Um, um, Now, for the first time, it, it will get concrete on page 190. He meets with his dad, first time since he died, and his father says to him, Roman, remember by your strength to rule Earth's peoples, for your arts are to be these, to pacify, to impose the rule of law, to spare the conquered battle down the proud." And Causes paused paused. as they gazed in awe and then added, see there, how he you point out these Romans, but that's his mission. Um, to pacify, to impose the rule of law, to spare the conquered battle down the proud. Um, quickly, when Aeneas leaves the underworld, do you remember there are two gates Virgil believed in reincarnation, and there's some, like, some suspicion that he read the Old Testament. There's a good chance that he also read Plato. It's, pretty, it's hard to believe he didn't read Plato, too, but he believed in the reincarnation of the soul, that the soul would die, go to the next life, and then be reborn again, because he knew that the soul was immortal. When Aeneas leaves the um, underworld, there are two gates, the gates of Horn and the gates of Ivory. Which day gates did he come out of? Hmm? Hmm? The,
1: the false dreams.
0: Yeah, the gates, the ivory gates, which means he entered the world through the gates of false dreams. Now this is the great hero of the Phinead. What in the world is Virgil doing? My own thought on this is this, that Virgil um, one of the reasons Dante chose Virgil as his guide, we're going to see this when we start to define comedy, is because Virgil was so deep. That Virgil knew that this Rome had come into existence and that there was some sense that it's not yet, that there's always something more. But I think he also had this very, very realistic sense of how much humans are given to illusions. The, In all of our aspiring, and all the good things we do, there's something illusory, but there's still something we don't get quite right. So even though Aeneas had these experiences in the underworld, he met with all of these figures, and he, like Odysseus, he was given a sense of final lens, that if this is what we become, we can learn this about our life in this world. So going to the afterlife is not a small thing. It teaches us about how to be better in what we do here. Odysseus learned that. One of the reasons we learn from the dead, we we learn from them so that we can do things differently here. Even though Virgil knew that, he still had some sense that that there's something illusory, there's something still we don't see. And In that sense I'm gonna say he was much more of a realist say than Homer. He was aware of mysteries and, and the difficulties that we have as humans working with them. Um, I want to just, two last things, I know it's late, and I'm really sorry, really sorry, I, but I just, I want to suggest something for you to look at. Um, um, turn to page 232. After Aeneas sees the vision of the of the giant sow and her 30 piglets, I'm just going to read these two passages and stop, um, because they're extraordinary. He sets upstream to go to Evander to make this alliance. Um, and look at this description on page 232. Nothing like this in Homer, not even close. Middle of the page, 232. Once underway, therefore cheered on, they made good speed upstream. Their tarry hulls within bubbling wakes behind slipped through the water, and the waves were awed. This is a pristine forest. It's, it's um, like, <laughs> take your experience of uh, Grapevine 30 years ago, you know, and it was undeveloped. Take it back 300 years when it, was a, when it was a pristine forest. There were no homes at all. That's the vision that Virgil had. Now hold on to this, because this is extraordinary. The, the waves have never seen ships before. Imagine a poet coming in here 300 years ago when there were no homes, but who was aware of Grapevine now because that's where Virgil stood, the capital was Xander, the Colosseum, right? This is a man going back 1,200 years before there was anything there but streams and, and virgin forest. The ships are going, these are ships, these are products of art. The, the golden bow, art and nature both, for Virgil. These are ships made by techne, by art. And the waves were on, the virgin woods were on at this new site, the soldiers' shields that flashed in the distant air, the painted ships afloat upon the river, oarsmen outwearied night and day in, rowed, in rowing, past the long bends. The, row, the rowers outweary night and day, they work harder you know, than the night and day which do nothing. I mean, they, they come and go. Oarsmen, outwearied night and day in rowing, past the long bend, shaded by differing trees and cleft green forests in the mirroring water. At that hour, when the fiery sun had climbed to heaven's midpoint, distant still, they saw wall citadel, a few housetops. The town built heavenward by Roman power, now, but meager then. So for the first time in our literature, we didn't get Homer, we've got a sense of this virgin condition set against what it now is. So two greatly, vastly distant times are brought together in a moment. Now, turn over one last. When he meets Evander, and they're doing the ceremony celebrating Hercules' victory over Caucus the minotaur figure, Evander has him eat with them, and after dinner, they keep walks with him to show him the surroundings. And we've got this on page 240. This goes very much to this idea of what Rome is, because we've been talking all along. What is this Rome? This is the center of our faith. This is the center of our Catholic faith. What is Virgil, this pagan, teaching us about our Catholic faith? Um, On page 240. Um, middle two forty. Then King Evander, founder unaware of Rome's great citadel, said, "These woodland places once were homes of local fauns and nymphs, together with a race of men that came from tree trunks, from hard oak. They had no way of settled life, no arts of life. This is like a Prometheus with fire." Because with fire, men could develop arts and become something other than just these mute, dumb creatures. No skill at yoking oxen, gathering provisions, practicing husbandry, but got their food from oak and and wild game hunting. Depth. This is before men were cultivated at all, they were some primitive, unarticulate, inarticulate things. In that first time out of Olympian heaven, Saturn came here in flight from Jove in arms, an exile from a kingdom lost. He brought those unschooled men together from the hills where they were scattered, gave them laws, and chose the name of Latium from his latency or safe concealment in this countryside. Latum, the word means latent, concealed, buried. Saturn was the founder. A god in exile. He was a fugitive. What is Aeneas? A fugitive. What is America? Always been a place for exiles, refugees, fugitives. Rome is a place for fugitives. It's a place where men seek <coughs> their final end, where they can escape these inhuman conditions that we're seeing everywhere in the book. So the nature of Rome is that his God is latent, buried, hidden in this place. Set it against these dying cities. Very different city, this Rome. The name of Latium from his latency of safe concealment in this countryside. Men of still so peaceful he ruled, till gradually a meaner, tarnished age came on, with lever of war and lust of game. Then came the Sonians, the Sussanian goes on, good middle of the next page. Then he showed the wood that Romulus would make a place of refuge. Then the grotto called the Lubrical, under a cold crag named Arcadian fashion after Lycaean pan. And then as well he showed the sacred word of Argiletum, Argus's death, and took oath by it, telling of a guest Argus put to death. From there he led to our Typanian site and capital, all golden now, in those days tangled wild with underbrush, but awesome even then. A strangeness there filled country hearts with dread and made them shiver at the wood and rock. Some god, he said, it is not sure what god lives in this grove. So, nothing like this close in Homer. Virgil showing us this virgin uncultivated land, set against the capital, the Colosseum, you know, all of it, Um, to make us aware that whatever Rome is involves this sense of distances, always more, Um, but underneath it is this God, this latency, the sense of something there. So Rome is this very, very, it is, do the people in Rome, the citizens of Rome today, have any notion of this? absolutely not, not a clue. This is Virgil's sense of what Rome is, the center of our faith. So whatever we are as Catholics, it seems to me, it, it, it carries something of all of this. It's not only Homer, all that Homer gave us, but all that Virgil did with Homer to change it, to, to make it something else. So, sorry I'm late. This is late. We will finish next week, um, I'm, I'm only gonna look at a couple of things, so it should be a shorter class. Um, Aeneas is gonna go to war. The next three books are gonna be filled with nothing but killing. We're back to bloodshed and violence, and Achilles, the ghost of Achilles, sort of hanging over what's happening. But, but, um, and it's gonna be interesting, I'm gonna be interested to hear what you guys make of the ending, what, what Virgil does with the ending because it's left critics really perplexed. Um, and if if part of the, one of the main reasons of what we've been doing is to try to understand Rome, what Rome is, as Virgil sees it coming into existence, what what all of you will say about Rome, given the ending of this book. So we have that to look forward to. Sorry, I'm so long. Pardon me. See you guys next week. Okay.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Have, have a good week, you guys.
1: I want to have one of those. Oh, you're going to have to take some with me. I'm going to have to take some with
0: me. Yeah, you know I would go. That's going to be really hard yeah, for me. Yeah, you know, I would bring little
1: baggies. Sniff there. You and there's, there's so many towards the coffees. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks. Oh, no, no, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, uh, I do. Ali never one. I do. Okay. Okay. I'm a little stupid to do that. Okay, good. Do
1: everybody get a copy of the Divine Comedy? Yeah, I'll do one you. doing okay? Yeah, she just, my daughter, me, her phone. That sounds familiar. yeah.
0: Want to take yes. I'll take a You know what? Put in here. Yeah, a uh, oh, say. I'm asking 15, I don't know how much they be ten. I I i hear.